All right, welcome back to the Big Dogs podcast. Today we're going to talk about the CrossFit quarterfinals, the first year, the inaugural CrossFit quarterfinals. We're going to talk about the events, my thoughts on the events, um, some of the more uh, logistical pieces with it. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to get into it. Got a lot of thoughts and wanted to share for uh, those that want to learn and gain some insight from my perspective. And of course, it also helps me kind of refine how I look at uh, the tests and what I thought was interesting and worthy of learning from uh, moving forward. So the first big noticing was the, the dichotomy and let's say leaderboard to a degree from the open. And what I'm referring to is how bigger and more powerful athletes were more present at the top of the leaderboard than smaller, more traditional CrossFit athletes. And a great uh, salient point would be the North American leaderboard. So Travis Mayer won, who Travis is a taller athlete and weighs more. I think he's around 205 pounds and he's about six foot, maybe six one. Um, but he's, he's, I mean, that's tall for a, a male CrossFit athlete, a games athlete. And then Amanda Barnhart won on the women's side. And Amanda is, I believe around five, seven and probably weighs around 160, I would say. And that again is a bigger, she is a bigger, uh, female games athlete. And I would say that they're both known for, um, being bigger amongst all of the, perennial games athletes and they both did amazing and they crushed it and then you look in europe the guy who won from the united kingdom he was also a bigger guy uh laura horthfath won in europe she's also a bigger stronger more powerful female um the i'm thinking of the other uh continents i don't know off the top of my hand i know i think con porter won in uh oceana and he's a, a taller a more powerful guy. And then of course, TO one for the female side and then Asia and South America and Africa. I don't really know the guys and, and women who won. So I'm not going to uh, speak on their behalf. So that is just an interesting noticing. And if you also looked Noah Olson, for example, I think Noah was around 10th place. And on the female side, you look at uh, Carrie Pierce, Haley Adams, who were both very high in the open leaderboard and they were both lower on the quarterfinal leaderboard. And again, it's not a right or wrong. It's just noticing the difference in how the leaderboard shook out on the, in the top. Uh, and, and that can create some context around, okay, well, let's look at the test and see if there was a bias towards that type of athlete. And I'm going to get into that. And I'm going to say, yes, there was a bias towards more of the bigger, more powerful athlete than it was a more well-rounded, uh, comprehensive test that in my opinion would have lend itself to someone more like Noah or more like Carrie to have done well, or, um, potentially have won the quarterfinals. So that was the, the interesting note. Um, if we tie in the open, so if we look at the open tests, which usually, or I should say traditionally those tests are 
fairly balanced with regard to testing the foundational aspects of what CrossFit tries to test for in, in the open um, and moving people towards the, the higher levels within their structure of competition where there's a great balance of um, muscle endurance, skill, uh, capacity, um, strength, under fatigue uh, across a lot of events. There aren't any real biased events, let's say. You know, one that does come to mind was 19.1, the wall ball row, which that combo is always going to be a biased combo for a bigger athlete due to weight and distance that they have to move for both movements. Um, it's just, it's, it will always be an advantage over somebody who is smaller or has shorter limbs, or I should say the shorter athlete is going to have to make up a lot of power to stay on par with the male or excuse me, the bigger, um, counterpart. So outside of 19.1, most events you see this, this, let's say balance between a bigger athlete and a smaller athlete. There are, of course, exceptions because 21.1 wall walks, double enders, I would say you would, of course, be biasing more of a smaller athlete due to, again, distance moved um, and limb length. Um, and then we think about 21.2, that could fall into the category of um, potentially biasing the smaller athlete yet again. I mean, I think the guy who won the world for the men, he was maybe like 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, probably weighs... 175. So again, distance moved, anthropometric, anthropometrics, very beneficial in that regard. And the reason I'm, I'm talking about these things is you want to create context around the tests and why, out, why there are certain outcomes. And this can help better inform how you prepare or how you look at your potential athletes um, in your training and also in creating expectations around well, what events can we excel at? What events do we need to execute as best we can to do as well as we can for our current abilities, even though we know certain people will beat us on this, regardless if we have our best day? Because I think if people assume that everyone is equal with, with regard to how well they can do on an event based on their body size, I think that's a little naive. And it sets the athlete up for failure because they could have an amazing performance, but still come in eighth or ninth and then be frustrated when the winner was somebody who was set up extremely well for that particular event. And that's another beauty of CrossFit is there's so many events that it allows for the, the, um, the best aggregate score or outcome across all those events. So having one event where you come in eighth and another, you come in second, that balances out over time. And that's why the winner is usually somebody who is, let's say the most balanced across the test. Um, so I think that's enough, uh, on, on that point, moving into the particulars around the, the events itself. And this, this is what comes back to that idea about the bigger, powerful athlete being more favored in these tests was there wasn't a rig for bar muscle ups. So toes to bar, chest to bar, bar muscle ups. Um, there weren't any rings for ring muscle ups. 
and that those reps around the scapula really lends itself well from a physics perspective for somebody who weighs less or has shorter limbs. So that becomes a, a movement or a selection of movements that can allow the smaller athlete to shine and challenge a heavier or larger athlete. So not having any of those was quite a, an advantage for the bigger, the bigger athlete, the one who weighed more and had longer limbs. And then additionally, when we do look at the reps that were around the scapula, the handstand push-ups, we'll say, was one of them. And, and, and well, I don't want to get into the weeds on, well, what constitutes around the scapula and what doesn't constitute around the scapula. So we're going to keep it simple and just say that the rope climbs and the handstand push-ups were the, the main movements that we could say were operating around the scapula for the particular movement. So for the handstand push-ups, you only had 60 total, which 60 is nothing. I mean, you did have the dumbbell shoulder overhead. So that's another 30 reps. So let's say, um, you had 90 total then. So it's 90 reps, 60 handstand pushups, 30 shoulder overhead. That's not a lot of reps for some of the tests that people have to do, um, with regard to those particular patterns. And then with the row climbs, you only had 18 and we'll get into the specifics of the events because I don't think the rope climb had much impact on the outcome of that event. Um, because it just wasn't, it wasn't enough. It was just kind of like thrown in there as an afterthought. Um, so that's, that's very interesting and worth noting because that, again, if, if you don't have a lot of movements around the scapula, then you're probably going to be looking at more movements around the hip or around the knee. Um, and that is going to potentially lend itself well to the bigger, more powerful athlete in theory. So that is, again, just something interesting to note. Now, when we look at total contractions or reps and how I, how I added this to give context is I took somebody who would have qualified for the semifinals and I looked at how many reps they did and I added those up. Uh, one thing or one, um, uh, one thing that I kind of, I, I just, I made a guesstimate on is when I added the front squat, I assumed that they took maybe three solid attempts of, of, of weight in their total 20 minute window. So I, I, I calculated that as 12 reps. And now obviously all these contractions are different with different intensities, but we're going to put that aside for the moment because we just want to look at the totality of repetitions performed to create context around, well, what actually is required for the competition? Like, what do you really need to be doing or what, what is required of the, of the athlete? So we add it all up for people who, who did qualify top 120 in North America. Cause that's what I was looking at. You come up with 1,086 total contractions and you do that at over five events that equals 217.2 contractions per event. Now we want to, of course, look at, well, how, how much time are you allocated for those contractions? So I, I took uh, every event, again, for somebody who qualified, except for the front squat, I removed that. And it came up with 608 seconds uh, divided by um, four events, which came out to about, or excuse me, 608 
seconds per event. Not that that was the divide, that was just for per. So 608 seconds per event was the average length, which equals about 10 minutes. So on average, the events were taking about 10 minutes in length, and there was an average of about 217 repetitions per event, which equates to around 21 repetitions per minute for an event. Now, why is this important? If you look at the open, and I did this in 2020, and I've done this previous years as well, if you take someone who's in the top of the, or well, I'll just, I'll just tell you what I came up with in 2020. So in 2020, I took people from the top 50 in the world. I added up the repetitions they had to perform. I, I looked at the average length of time per event, and it came out to about 26 repetitions per minute for 12 to 13 minutes of working time. And that has become this somewhat consistent theme for what's the rate of work you have to perform in the sport, which is around for the top end people averaging 20 to 28 repetitions per minute for 10 plus minutes. Like that's on, and a, on a very basic level, like what, what is required in the sport. Now, of course, it goes without being said, what goes into those reps are very different. So not all reps are created equal. We, we are, we're acknowledging that. We're just looking at these numbers to create context around, okay, well, if we were to train for the sport or get better at the sport, what is something that we need to be capable of doing? And a simple example is you need to be able to do 20 plus reps of burpees and kettlebell swings for 15 minutes in a row. Like that's, that is a great test of how well can you handle um, the requirements for the sport. So I thought that was, that was worth um, noting. And I wanted to add one more point to that. One of the reasons why myself, my colleagues at Big Dogs, we really love the CrossFit Open 12.3, which was the 18-minute AMRAP of 15 box jumps. Uh, we do box jump step down when we uh, prescribe it, 12 shoulder overhead and nine toes to bar for 18 minutes elite people get over 500 reps on that, which comes out to right around 26 repetitions per minute for 18 minutes. And so if you can maintain 26 repetitions per minute for 18 minutes with that triplet, those combinations of movement, that is a great key performance indicator for mixed modal capacity for the sport. And so I, I love using that as a reference point to see, well, how, what are people capable of with regards to work per minute in a mixed setting. And the, the balance of those three movements where they're relatively complementary allows a, a greater turnover and, um, ex, and, and not necessarily running into bottlenecks for those that are near the, the top in the sport. And then of course, this informs your uh, decision-making process, your design process with regard to how you're gonna improve this person's capabilities and how you're going to over time increase the amount of work that they can average per minute in mixed settings to make it super simple. Say they start with you and they're averaging 18 minute, 18 reps per minute for 10 minutes on something simple. Maybe it's, you know, toes to bar, um, dumbbell front squat and burpees. And then three years later, they're, they're able to add average 22 reps per minute on the same test. If that was the case, and you, you could have a strong argument to say that their fitness has increased 
under the context of what the sport of CrossFit is testing or requiring in their tests. So that can become a target for uh, your training and development for athletes. Okay, so that's enough of that. Let's talk about the layout and format. Um, I actually, this was probably my favorite layout and, and format to date because it made it very hard for you to redo tests, which I talked about in the open podcast I did where I, I prefer competitions not allow you to redo events because it, it takes away an element of a, a competitor and uh, being able to adapt quickly to tests and tasks that are unknown to you um, and able to cope and handle stressors that are, that are just coming on the fly. So being able to redo, it just, it allows you to game it and refine and refine. And I think it just takes away from the competitive nature of it. So this format of having a deadline to turn in events, I thought was a wonderful way to minimize that, uh, to allow the, you know, the, the true capabilities of, of the competitors to come to the table. And then additionally, the, the, I don't want to say it's a blind leaderboard, but seeing the leaderboard after every few events, I thought was awesome too. Cause then it gave you a little bit of insight, like, okay, well, where am I sitting? I need to, cause you know, when you're in that competition, it's not in person, you kind of want to know like, okay, am I in a good spot? Do I need to make a move on these next few, et cetera. Um, whereas you, know, if you think about the master's qualifier, it's always unfortunate because you get five or six events and then you have four or five days to do them or four days, Thursday to Monday, one, two, three, five days, but you don't get to see scores until that Monday evening. So you're just kind of going through the weekend, hoping, was that good enough? Do I need to redo it? And then all of a sudden it's like, let's see where I ended up. And you know, that's, that's stressful and frustrating. And um, it's nice to have a little glimpse of where you sit as you're progressing through the competition. So Kudos to Grossip for that. And I hope they hope they keep that structure for the Masters qualifier uh, in May. That would be awesome. So now let's talk about the, the, the events or, or tests. So I'm going to go in the order of how I laid them out for all my clients, which it started, I start, had them start with the front squat uh, because I wanted the legs fresh because there was a lot of squatting volume in these tests. Um, and yeah, I wanted to make sure, and it was a good, you know, stimulator for the nervous system. Um, and yeah, just want to take advantage of that. So the front squat, people are obviously getting stronger in the sport. That's not, uh, there's nothing new there. Uh, hitting, you know, 90 plus percent seemed like a fairly common, uh, trend in this event for people. And for most of even my own clients, it looked as though 90% became the goal for the, the target weight that you wanted to hit. And for those who, who do want to reach the next level or, or you know, go to the semifinals or the games, this was a great insight to give you clarity around, well, how, how strong do I need to be to be at that level? You know, like what, assuming, you know, say you say as a male, you front squatted, you know, 315 for four, but you want to go to the games like, well, you, you probably need to be able to squat 365 for four, which means you probably need a, a PR around 400 pounds for your front squat, which is a lot. So 
and same on the, the female side, you know, you probably needed to be able to front squat around 230 plus for four, which then again, that would probably put you at, uh, oh man, what would that be? Maybe like 260, probably 260 for a single. So that's, you know, that's, that's one of the beauties of it is it gives, it creates a little bit more context around, well, what, what do you need um, strength wise in that particular pattern to, to be on par with, with those level of athletes. If you weren't able to hit 90%, then you can, of course, ask yourself, well, were you tired? Were you fatigued going into the competition? Um, you know, there's the, that's something to look at. Like maybe there were uh, outside variables that impacted your ability to um, really, you know, hit close to your, to your max on that, that test. So something now, so that would of course be my thoughts around the event. Now I want to talk about well, why I don't think it was a great event to use. And that's partly because there was only five tests. And if there's only five tests, making an event so far to the right on the strength continuum or left, whatever direction you want to take it, I feel is How can I word this? Well, let me word, let me explain my alternative and then hopefully that creates more context because I can't think of the right wording to say. So I think a better test would have been something that was more extended out to test your strength endurance a bit more. And the strongest people would probably still win, but those who didn't have optimal positioning or efficiency would probably falter as that got extended out towards, it was 40 to 60 seconds of having to do something. So for example, I think a wonderful test that can tell you a ton would be one uh, unbroken round of DT. So you have to do 12 deadlifts unbroken, nine hang power cleans unbroken or squat cleans if they wanted to make it you know, squat clean or power clean and then six shoulder overhead unbroken. So that for a max load unbroken I think would be a better test in this circumstance than a four rep max, because now you're starting to create a splitting. You're starting to separate those who have movement efficiency. They have great strength endurance. Um, they, their positions are immaculate such that as they're getting higher and higher in load, they aren't gassing their system so much so that when they get to those shoulder overhead, I mean, it's like they're on, they're hanging on for dear life. Whereas with a front squat, any Joe Schmo from the gym could grind out a four at max. And that, you know, that, that, that equals the same amount as the GHD rope climb pistol workout. So in my opinion, I, I feel as though if there's a, a, a small amount of events like that, an absolute strength test, I feel might not be the best uh, use of the tests, but rather more of a strength speed. So some type of complex or, you know, a three RM snatch touch and go. Uh, I think that would lend itself better for the sport and what the sport is trying to test for, which, you know, of course I'm assuming what it's testing for, cause it's never hundred percent clear. Um, but that, that would be my, uh, my bias um, because, you know, you think of these tests and you, you want to create you want to create separation, like a significant dividing line, like an inflection point where one group 
starts to falter and this other group starts to rise significantly. And that becomes the separation between those who are capable and those are who not those who aren't. And if it's if it's more blurried or it's not that there isn't a clear separation point, then that becomes an issue and, and, and allows you to challenge whether or not that was a great test. And I'm going to get into that with a few other events. So that's enough, I think, for the front squat. Having said that, I think a better test in the future, if there's not a lot of tests, like you know, only five, a complex or a strength speed test would be a better indicator or challenge of someone's strength capabilities, uh, given the context of a fitness uh, competition. If there were nine events or eight events, then I could, then I would probably say, yeah, you know what, let's, let's have a, an absolute strength test in there. I think that would have more uh, value um, with the, the actual tests. So we talk about the next event, the handstand pushup. So I would go next up for the front squad. So looking at this event, the first thing that came to my mind was, uh, adrenaline, like who could, who could jack up their system as, as much as possible and just throttle it as fast as you could for six to seven minutes. And that's what it was. It wasn't enough reps to create a huge separation. Like I was just saying with the front squat, like there wasn't, it was just you know, how fast could you run through it and then be done. And my bias would be if you wanted to test extended muscle endurance, then why not do ascending reps and why not do more reps to really challenge how competent somebody is with those particular patterns, um, with more volume. So maybe you do, you know, an eight minute AMRAP of three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18 strict handstand pushups, uh, dumbbell power cleans, and then double unders the, the best, the best will still rise, but those who don't have the volume built, who can't do 70 plus strict handstand pushups strict, they were, they're going to falter quite a bit. There's going to be a clear separation of, of who can, who can do that and who can't. Whereas in this circumstance, I felt that the volume just wasn't, it wasn't enough to create the separation point that it, it should have been it lengthened more, I thought. But again, the best will still win. Like Jake Berman, he won that event and he's a good friend of mine and he would have he would still win if it was extended, like I just gave in this example, but it's not so much for the top end people, but it's more so for the people who are in that next subgroup that separates uh, those who qualify and those who don't, that's where you want to try to create this separating point where those who have that capacity and that muscle endurance can rise in a test like that. Whereas the other people who don't necessarily um, can't rise because um, those people could get away with a test like this where the volume is low and they can push through it uh, and, and stay right below their fatigue point and sneak out through it with a good time versus if it was just pushed further and further, they would get exposed and they would, they would lose. So that was my, uh, my thoughts with that test. Um, it's interesting too, that they plugged in that one minute rest between uh, the three rounds. And then of course they did a one minute rest in the open so maybe that's their flavor of the year. And maybe we'll see that in um, semifinal events or the games. I wouldn't be surprised because there's always, there's always like a consistent 
new thing that they they play with or use. So that is something worth noting that maybe that's something that they're trying to, they want to play with testing, is, you know, fatigue repeatability, let's say. So let's go on to the, the GC rope climb pistol test. So I'm sure everybody saw this and thought, wow, that's a lot of reps because yes, I would agree that that was a ton of reps, especially for a quarterfinal event. I mean, that was, was it overkill? I don't know. Maybe why, you know, the, what, how I looked at it was why not do 120 of both and more rope climbs, like 20 rope climbs that way you, cause again, the best will still win. But now the rope climbs can become more involved. I think with so with the volume of GHGs and pistols being so high, the rope climbs were insignificant. I even talked to, I had a lot of clients do the core finals, and almost all of them were saying, "Yeah, the the rope climbs were not that big of a deal." I I just moved through them. They were tough, like they weren't easy, but I wasn't losing. I didn't feel like I was losing time there. Um, a few people, I should I should change that. A few people did say. That they could they potentially lost some time there but if i watched their video um we could probably we could probably have a discussion around whether or not the ghgs were slower or the rope climb and figure out well did you really lose time there or did you lose time somewhere else and you just felt like you lost time there but in my opinion i don't think it was enough reps even though their your midsection was fatigued and made the rope climbs hard i don't think it was enough to really separate those who were capable of that movement and those who weren't because the, the pistol and GHG were just so much. I mean, if you took away the rope climbs, I think the outcomes would still be the same. Maybe the top end would shift a little, but for the majority, I don't think it would change much um, because it was just so much, uh, so much volume for both those. And maybe even instead of doing the rope climb, maybe you did muscle up and then maybe it would change things quite a bit. Cause of course, in that, in that action, there is a aggressive hip, uh, flexion extension moment that's needed to get over the rings. So if you're challenging it with both the pistol and the hands and the GHG sit up, the muscle up could have been a good alternative to really challenge muscle endurance with non-complementary patterns, which is essentially what they were going for in that test, uh, three gymnastic movements with non-complementary patterns and how well you can make those contractions sustainable. And that's what essentially was separating the best from the not from not the best was, could you make GHG sit-ups like crunches? I mean, that's, if you, <laughs> I'm laughing because if you've looked at Rich's training over the past decade, he does a ton of GHG sit-ups and he's been doing hundreds per week, probably for the past decade. And how I think of it is I think Rich thinks of GHG sit-ups as they're just, it's just ab work. It's just crunches. And so to him, it's, it's nothing, but for most people, you look at those and it's like a very demanding spinal flexion activity that can make you very, very sore if you're not doing a lot of them. And so when you watch him do GHG sit-ups, cause you can go on YouTube and watch him do the event. Like those reps are so sustainable. It's like, it's nothing for him. And he just pushes through them. No problem. And then he goes and does his pistols, his rope climbs. And that's why, you know, he did it under, or did it right around 15 minutes, which that was a, it's a very fast time on that test. So that is something that is worth making note of for your training is you need to make that movement more sustainable over time. You need to dampen the contraction rate 
that your system is going through when you're doing a GHG setup because that flexion movement is very fatiguing and very dynamic. So it needs to become softened so that 180 reps is, is okay. You can handle that and not have severe DOMS the next day. And, and that's, and you have to build that. That's a lot. I mean, that was actually one of the movements that I felt or I was frustrated about because I don't think I built enough reps for most of my people in their training because my slight bias is I just don't like people doing a ton of them, but the reality is they need to be prepared to do 180 reps in a test. So that was a great learning for me that I need to make sure I'm implementing more of them. Uh, not at the expense that other skills and movements are not being developed because, you know, now that's, I mean, that's one of the challenging parts about coaching and program design is you're trying to balance, well, which movements do I need to bias or build more while I, I'm, I'm putting some other things on the side because you can't do everything all the time. There's, there's this you know, checks and balances approach that must uh, be implemented. So GC sit-ups, a lot of them can really impact a lot of movements, your strength training, your speed strength, your um, other gymnastic patterns. There's like, there's a lot that a lot of GHGs can negatively impact. So building and implementing that is, is very intricate and has to be, you know, a slow, gradual process. So that was a good learning uh, regarding that movement specifically. But I think that's enough for that movement right now. When we think about the pistol again, 180, that is a lot. And what's great about the pistol, what I like about the pistol is it really highlights right to left asymmetries. You know, do you have a, do you have a strong leg when you do a pistol? Do you have a weak leg when you do a pistol? And when you have a lot of volume like that, you, you greatly expose the discrepancies right to left. And that's why volume is a great test because there, it creates a big separation point where do, does the pattern of movement you currently possess, does it have the resilience to handle a lot of volume of reps, or are you going to break down and hit a fatigue point quicker than someone else, which kind of ties back into the handstand pushup, the volume being so low, you could sneak through and get away with less than optimal positioning and get a, a decent score on the test. Whereas if it was 90 reps of handstand pushups or, um, uh, shoulder, um, flexion activity, you, you could see a, just a discrepancy in outcome even greater than you would have. So back to the pistol, 180 was great. Was there an asymmetry right to left? Um, if so, then that is of course something that needs to be worked on because you need to, you need to be really confident in performing those movements. And just like the GHD, you have to make them extremely smooth and dampened so that you can just go down and up, down and up, down and up, back and forth. Whereas if every time you do your left leg, you have to contract or slow down the eccentric because your knee can't handle it. That's a problem. And that needs to be fixed in the off season as you build into your competitive season. So that when you get to the competition again, you can do those reps very efficiently as if you were doing air squats. So that's, that's partly it. You can think of it that way. You need to make those pistols feel like air squats. And if they weren't, if they didn't feel like air squats, then that is something that uh, needs to be worked on. And then also, I mean, 
with so many reps in that test, you can look at, well, how far did you get to then create context around what, you know, like, what are you currently capable of? What, how much volume can you handle in those patterns? And if you didn't get all the way through it, or if you only got through hundred GHG sit-ups or 50 or whatever it might be, that's a great illuminating point of where you currently sit relative to what the testing parameters are. So for your training moving forward, that gives you context on, I, I'm saying context a lot, around, because it's really important, you need to have context for all these things, around how much volume you need to build so that you can handle and express 180 reps of those particular patterns. And then if you say, well, I have this knee thing, so we don't do a lot of pistols, or if your coach said that, then you got to spend more time improving mechanics or control of your hip, control at the ankle, such that your knee can handle more of those reps and they are less uh, impactful or damaging for your body. So these are things you can be thinking about in, in reviewing based upon how you did. I think that is, yeah, I think that's enough for, uh, for that test. Let's move on to power snatch burpee. because so I had people do this before the row wall ball. So the first thing I thought of before the test, before people started doing it and afterwards it, I thought it, uh, it was holding water was the reps weren't enough to again, create a separating point and to create context around that. Look at it this way. If, if somebody from a globo gym, who's really strong, like they deadlift 550 pounds, you know, they back squat 450, like they're really strong bench press, maybe, you know, 365. And if they can come into a CrossFit gym and you can show them the snatch and the burpee box from over and say, do nine, six, three of these two movements. And then they just pick up the bar and, you know, they can just like snatch it. It's not really, it doesn't look good, but they can do it. And they're like, just like this. You're like, yeah, like that. And they do it in two and a half minutes because they could. And you tell them, yeah, you, you got to push as hard as you can. It's going to be shitty. It's not going to feel great, but you know, it'll be done before you know it. If they can do that in two and a half minutes, then that's not a great test for a, a fitness competition. And the reason for that is you, of course, want to get rid of those outliers. You want to create a separation where someone like that can't walk in and do the test really well. You want to, you, if it was 30 reps of both, so if it was 12, nine, six, three, then that guy would get destroyed because after 15, 18 reps, he would be in a lot of, I'm going to say pain, but he'd be in a lot of, uh, discomfort or fatigue and the snatches he'd start failing. Whereas somebody who finished that workout in 220 or 230, um, at the top of the leaderboard, they would be fine. They would keep plugging along and maintain their pace and output. So I think the reps were, were too low and it again biased somebody who was really powerful and strong, which you could take the, the outcomes of that event and correlate it to the front squat outcomes uh, with regard to loading. And I'm sure that there would be a strong correlation that if you front squat a lot, you probably did really well on that test. So then that creates an argument around, well, do you need both of those tests? to 
figure out who's powerful and who's strong, or can you get rid of one and then put in something that's a better test? And that is essentially what I was referring to earlier about the DT complexes. Do something that further challenges not only strength, but proficiency in movement, strength endurance, uh, one's capabilities with fatigue and challenging load, et cetera. And if we look at this power snatch burpee, if you extend this out again to 30 and 30 reps, I think you'll start to create better separation and see who has the strength endurance needed to perform uh, this test. You know, if, if you, if the tests, cause this is, this is what always creates the, the challenge is trying to figure out well, what are, what are they testing for or what's the, the purpose behind these specific tests? If the test's purpose was we want to test top end power, like who has, you know, the most amount of power or something like that, then why not do 20 thrusters at 135 and 95 pounds, um, 20 bar facing burpees and 20 cows on the rower? Like why not do that instead? because now you're extending it a bit more to where the really powerful person might run into some difficulty on the, the back half of that piece, because those thrusters might be really hard for their brain to do because they don't necessarily have the positions for it, arguably. But then again, that would be a really great test of power. So I think I got a little ahead of myself there. If the goal was to test pure power in a mixed setting, then I think that would be a better test. But then again, if that's the goal, then why do you need a, an absolute strength test? Because that is, that isn't as is a large element of someone's power. So that's, and, and then the, the problem with that is now you have two events out of five, which is 40% of the events that are testing strength and power. It's like, that's almost half the events that are strength and power based. Uh, so, and the sport's not about strength and power. The, the sport is about um, metabolic. Well, I talked about this last time and I, I should probably just write this down. So it's, it's really clearly articulated each time, but it's essentially how well do you handle metabolic perturbations uh, and the occasional tougher contraction over six events over a three day competition. I mean, that's, that's essentially what you're trying to do for the sport. It's not a, it's not a power sport. 15% of the events in a normal competition are strength and power based. The 80 other 85% are mixed metabolic scenarios. So that's, uh, that's my rant on that one. Um, it should have been a little longer in my opinion, which I'm sure you're seeing this continual theme where the, the front squat should have been more extended. The handstand pushups should have been more extended. The power snatch should have been more extended. And then the GHG setup should have been maybe reduced a little bit. So it's kind of funny how it's either they need to be extended or it needs to be shortened. Um, and then now that leaves us with the wall ball row or row. <laughs> I just botched that. The uh, wall ball row. There we go. Which was my favorite event. Um, yet again, it does bias the taller and bigger athlete, which is partly why I do like that event because I am taller and heavier. Um, but the simplicity piece is just so beautiful. And that's why I thought it was such a great test because you either 
wanted to push it and you wanted to hold 1600 on the rower for five minutes or four minutes, or you wanted to break up the wall balls more and you wanted to go slower in the row. It was so simple. It just re it reminded me of 21.2. The, there's so much truth and simplicity where you either, you either have it or you don't. Now, of course, as I've been talking about, this brings in the conversation around, well, if you are bigger, then it's going to lead more favorably to you doing well. And you look at, of course, the people who had the best times in the world on the event for the male and female, they were bigger athletes because of just physics. Like you're taller, your distance of travel moved, the, um, the stroke rate and the power output on a rower, you can't get around these facts. So, but again, I mean, if Matt Frazier did the event, because the, the best in the sport always are the anomalies. They'll always do well in everything, but you, but you can't, you need to, you need to look at what they're doing, but you can't use them as your sole determiner, whether or not it was a great test. You need to be, of course, looking at, well, is it, is it creating a great separating or separation point with a larger cohort of people? Um, and I would say in this regard, this test would, I think the, the, well, I mean, that's tough to say. I have to like, think about that more. I, hmm. I don't know. I don't, maybe we don't go down that route because I haven't thought enough about that, but we'll keep it within the, the confines of what I've been thinking about the event. I love that it was simple. I love that you got to decide whether or not you wanted to push it. Um, I love that it, it, it got to show us what level of top end power endurance you need. So, you know, the 120 cows, you're essentially trying to row at 2K PR after doing 120 wall balls. So that can be, and that was how I, how I prefaced it for most of my athletes was, you know, what, what's your 2K row PR pace? And your goal is to try to hold right around that for, you know, five to six minutes, depending on how long it would take you. And if you could do that, then you were, you were hitting as close to your potential as possible in that test, in my opinion. So that was, I thought that test was perfect. The reps were perfect. It was just enough to where you could make the decision whether or not you wanted to go on broken. Um, so kudos to them on that one. But again, it, of course, biased the powerful, bigger athlete. And then you add in the power snatch burpee. And then you add in the front squat. And now you have 60% of the tests biasing a stronger, more powerful athlete. And what happens? The leaderboard then biases the bigger, stronger, more powerful athlete. So I'm interested to see how this plays out in the semifinals and the games. Because I, I highly doubt that they will keep that theme for the next two stages. That's not, that's not consistent with how they test. If anything, I would say over the last five years, the tests have moved more towards body weight, gymnastic capabilities, um, and less towards strength and power, in my opinion. So that's... Uh, That'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And of course, the semifinals, each, each, uh, each group that's putting on their event, they're designing the events, but I know CrossFit has to play uh, or they uh, have to give them the okay with the events. So 
we'll see what happens there. Uh, but yeah, so that would be my points around the events. So now let's talk about broader points around the event, around the competition, recovery, preparation, truth. So one thing I talked about in the open podcast was preparation for the tests and how preparing for the open is very different than preparing for a quarterfinals, which is very different than preparing for a semifinals, which is very different than preparing for the games because the tests and the layout of the tests are all very different. The open is multiple weeks. The quarterfinals now is, you know, four to six events over multiple days. The semifinals will be six to eight events over three days. The games is usually 12 events over three to four days. They're very different types of tests, which mean the preparation is very different. So that's worth recognizing for yourself to say, well, how, how did I handle the difference in style of tests? How did I handle doing an event on a Friday and then redoing it on a Monday? How did I handle doing multiple events in one day and then resting and doing multiple events the next day and then resting and doing another event? How well did I recover? How was my preparation? How was my energy and output on the second half of the day? Was I tired and did I feel like I didn't have enough juice? These are all things that you want to be paying attention to and seeing how well did you handle that in order to maximize your performance. Because if we, if we boil it down, the goal with a competition that's over multiple days is you're trying to minimize how much fatigue you're accumulating over the course of that competition. To make it to, to make give you an easy example, when Rich Froning did the game or competed in the games, he always did well on Sunday. I mean, almost like almost won every event on Sunday. And part of the reason for that was by the time Sunday came around, everybody's fatigue level was at, well, let's say when you start the competition, you're at 100 percent By the time they get to Sunday, most people are operating at 75 to 85% of that hundred, whereas rich is operating at 91%. If you got six more percent than the next guy, you're going to be able to do a lot better on a test because you have less accumulated fatigue. And so when you have these multiple event or multiple day competitions, that's what you're essentially preparing for and trying to uh, create a system inside yourself that can handle the, the decrement in fatigue that you're going to experience. We're trying to minimize that over the course of multiple days. And we're not going to get into all the specifics around that because I've talked about them before. James has talked about that. But that is what you're trying to do when you have to do multiple events over uh, multiple days. So that's why you need to ask, well, how did I feel on day one comparative to the last day? And how did I feel in the afternoon comparative to the morning? Just to see if there's things that you need to be working on in your, your off season. And then preparation execution. So they gave very specific floor plans this year, which I think was helpful just regard with regard to where to set up the camera. Um, you know, that's always a stressful point is like, well, how do I need to set up the camera where, you know, it, so I think that was helpful in one sense, but then also how easily was that for you to set it up, make sure it was right. 
um, to have the right bar or the rope and everything like how how seamless was the preparation process for you to ensure that the execution of the event went well um, i think that's another maturity piece that comes through experience is making sure all the little minute details are accounted for such that you aren't spending extra energy or thought on making sure your camera's in the right place it's charged um, you have the right rope you have x, x this and that so that's something that is worth investigating as well how well did you how well did you prepare your food for between meals how well did you cool down between events um, how well did you fuel the night before um, how well were you warming up these are all the little things that you you need to be paying attention to especially when you're doing multiple events in a day because you're trying to get your system up for an event and then you want to come down just a little bit depending on how much time you have between events because if you have an hour between events and you're not going to come down too much whereas if you have three hours between events then you can come down more and probably digest something and then come back up for another event and then this of course ties into your training over the past year in practicing doing this, especially on weekends to get your body ready for what that feels like and how to have cortisol rise in the morning to do something and then come down so you can eat something and then rise again so you can do something else and then come back down so you can rest in the evening time. That's something that has to be practiced and ingrained in your system. And if you felt like that was challenging or you didn't handle that as well as you could have, then that's a great noticing for the following year that I need to be practicing this so that when it comes up again, I feel ready to go. And I know exactly when or how much time I need to warm up, what, how I need to cool down, what I need to be eating between meals, how much time I need between meals, or excuse me, time between events to eat something, et cetera. These are all little things that create a, you know, five, 10% difference in performance over six events. Um, those are just my numbers I'm throwing there, but it does make a difference. And then the truth, where, where do you sit? What was your outcome? Uh, how well did you handle the events? Were you able to complete all the events? Uh, was your, how did your body feel at the end of the weekend? Were you banged up? Were you really sore? Um, did you have a tweak? You know, these are all things to take note of, to reflect on and see, you know, how was my preparation? How did I feel coming into the event? Uh, how well did I take care of those little details that I just mentioned? These are all things that are worth sitting down and reflecting on so that you can learn and grow from this experience. I think one thing that people skimp out on or forget about is at the end of a competition, you always need to take time to reflect on the competition, the results, the experience, uh, the learnings, you, you don't just do a competition, competition and then just go to the next thing. That's a very, that's a very unconscious approach. And if you want to become, if you want to reach your physical potential, you're going to need to become very conscious of reflection around your competitions and execution of events so that you can learn and adapt each time you do it, because that's what separates the best from not the best is experience and learning to continually refine their package, their capabilities for when they do compete. 
So make sure you are taking time to, you know, whether it's journaling or thinking about the events or writing down uh, what your main takeaways were and what you're going to focus on differently for your upcoming season. And of course, you know, maybe you have a coach who can help you with that or um, provide some insight or guidance around that. Is that something I'm doing with all my clients who competed in quarterfinals? Uh, for those that are moving on, talking about the plan for the next month and a half and what we're going to be doing. Uh, for those that are not moving on, reflecting on the events, what were our big wins, what were our big takeaways, how's that going to impact our training for the next year. This is a, a very positive and impactful way to um, utilize your competitive experiences such that you can keep growing and developing as an athlete. Um, and don't, don't always limit it to, I just need to improve my capacity. I think that's something that people continually think because I, I mean, even when I was first getting into CrossFit, that's why I thought I was like, Oh, I just need to get my capacity better and I'll be a, a games level athlete. That's a very low, lower order perspective on what's your limitation in the sport. And I would argue that most cases, that's not what you actually need to improve on to get better at the sport. There's a multitude of reasons probably why or how you need to get better in the sport. And there's a multitude of ways in which you can improve things in your life that will improve capacity, like sleeping more, for example. So don't just see the or the quarterfinals and say, yeah, my capacity needs to get better. I need to you know, be able to row faster or I need to be able to do more reps. Like, nah, let's dive into that a little bit more. Let's look at more particulars around your performance and how we can improve that. And I think there's, there's a lot of power in that because you're taking more of a um, uh, productive approach to improvement instead of just slapping shit on the wall and seeing if it sticks. I think that's the, the old saying, something like that, or throwing shit on the wall. But all right, so that's about all I got. Uh, if you have any, any follow-up questions or comments, feel free to email me. Sam at the big or you can DM me on Instagram at coach Sam Smith. Um, I'd love to chat more on it. Uh, I hope you all took something away from it and uh, I wish you all the best on the journey ahead.